Well, grab your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9. Welcome back to Sunday evening worship. And uh, it's always good to, to be back in Sunday evening worship and uh, to open up God's Word. Remember, one of the things that we try to do, uh, I know COVID threw a few things off, is we try to extend what it is we discuss on, uh, in the morning. We try to do that in, in the evening, usually a little more laid back. Um, but we certainly want to continue what we talked about this morning. Hebrews 9. And we won't exegete this the way we, we normally would. Uh, we want to look at the first five verses. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. The writer of Hebrews writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Upon the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind to open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes and ears, our hands and our feet and our mouths. We go in obedience to Christ. Uh, that we see the glory and the beauty that is Jesus here in this text and in every text. Convict us in this time of worship, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I, I love archaeology. I particularly love archaeology as it relates to uh, the biblical worldview. Um, in 20th century, uh, we uncovered one of the greatest archaeological finds in the history of the world, and that, of course, was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found them because a Bedouin uh, 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 sheep herder was throwing rocks, as little boys have a tendency to do, heard a crash up in one of them in the caves, and some smart people went up there and found out there are a lot of things up there you can break with a rock. And it was uh, uh, documents, manuscripts, that were nearly 2,000 years old. Well, if there was anything that could top the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think on that list would without a doubt be the Ark of the Covenants. I know Indiana Jones found it and everything else, but, but if we could actually find uh, the Ark of the Covenants, that would, um, that would almost top the 80 things on top of COVID right now. I know things are crazy right now, but that would almost be, be up or on on that list. That would be a significant find. But what if I told you we may know where the Ark of the Covenant is? Can, can, I, can I tell you some of the leading theories, particularly the ones that entertain me the most? One theory is that it is found in a cave near Jerusalem. This has some historical precedent. And according to Second uh, Maccabees chapter 2, verse 4 and 10, this is in your Catholic Bible. Um, you didn't need to bring that, but if you did, in your Catholic Bible, in Second Maccabees, Supposedly, the prophet Jeremiah hid it in that mysterious cave prior to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming to destroy the city. A second theory, yeah, I have these up here. Second theory is Ethiopia. This is actually the, uh, the leading one, not leading among scholars, but is a leading one. If you spend too much time on the internet, you should stop. But if you are doing that and you go down this rabbit hole, uh, this is a, a leading, leading theory. The Chapel of the Tablet of the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion. <laughs> you thought East Frankfurt Baptist Church was a long name. Um, 
they claim that they have in their sanctuary, behind a curtain, all that sort of stuff, the actual Ark of the Covenants. On June 25th, 2009, the patriarch of the Orthodox Church of Ethiopia promised he would reveal the Ark to the, the seen world. Well, when the day came, he decided to change his mind. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this is a prominent theory, again, not among scholars, but among others. And there's a whole history why that is. It's a fascinating history. A third possible location is Europe. Now, I know you're, you're saying to yourself, self, how in the world does a Middle Eastern Jewish uh, relic end up in Europe? Well, one of the reasons is the Knights Templar. You're interested now, aren't you? I mean, this is, this is going to be your... Uh, I'm sure History Channel's done a special on this because they just love the Knights Templar. They're the blame for everything. They supposedly placed it in a French cathedral. I believe the cathedral is still standing. Another theory regarding Europe is it is hidden in France. So French, the French get all the good stuff, I guess. It was hidden in France during World War I. Um, and then after World War I, it was moved to the United States. I don't know where in the United States, but I say we start digging and looking. I mean, that, that'll get us on the cover of State Journal, won't it? Others suggest it might be in Rome, of course. Or even Ireland. Look, with a name like McDaniel, you're hoping it ends up in Ireland. Let's be honest. Well, you know, top of the morning to you. You know, it's, God's, God's been with us all along. You know? <laughs> but there is a fourth option worth looking at. And I hope you're sitting down. Tutankhamun's tomb. In fact, we may have found it. Take a look at this picture. This was a picture released back in the day, 1922. When the tomb of Pharaoh Tutankhamun, of course, he cursed everyone that found it. Uh, this was a photo released around the world. And what is that? What is that? Doesn't that look like the Ark of the Covenants? It's got the poles you're supposed to put it on because you're not supposed to put it on a cart. In case you weren't here this morning, don't put it on the cart, right? Do not touch this. And it looks just like the Ark of the Covenant. It, of course, is called the Anubis Shrine or it may have a better pronunciation, but I don't speak Egyptian. And a lot of people thought... Eureka! We found the Ark of the Covenant, but it is not the Ark of the Covenant for a number of reasons. Here is a, a better picture of it. It got cut off, but it's not the actual Ark of the Covenant, so I wouldn't worry about giving you a great picture of it. Of course, there is a... Whatever that creature is. Um, and uh, so it's not cherubim. It isn't the right size. I believe this may be larger. Um, I didn't write it all down because I wasn't that interested in it, but it's clearly not the Ark of the Covenants. Well, nevertheless, what we see here in the text is a description of the holy place and inside of it, the holy of holies, the most holy place your text may describe it as. And right at its center is the Ark of the Covenants. It was just above that Ark, the mercy seat, where the cherubim cover, that is where God himself dwells. Thus, when we go back to what it is we saw this morning, that, that moving of the Ark of the Covenant is so easy to, to look over it, isn't it? Because we've never seen it in, in, in reality. We, it's not the way we think as Baptists. We don't have a site here in the sanctuary that says, the closer you are to, to, to this item here, this relic here, the closer you are to God. But in a Jewish mindset, that is exactly what it is. 
that you have. So here we have Christian believers here in Hebrews who, 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 who are being written to. Hebrews is, is possibly a sermon in, in letter form. Uh, and the writer, the speaker is pleading with them, don't redefine the faith. Don't, don't leave the faith. Don't, don't, don't dilute the faith in, in thinking that if only we go back to the faith of our fathers, the faith of, of, of our traditions, then everything will be easier for us. And one of the things he does is he draws our attention to, 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 to the place of God in the temple, the holy place, and even more, the most holy place. And he, he gives us details. In fact, in verse 5, he, 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 after he describes the cherubim, the mercy seat, he says, there's so much more we could describe here, but, but I don't have enough space for it. So I want us to zero in there on the Ark of the Covenant since it was so prominent this morning and we were short on time to go into the sort of detail we, we would like to. And the question is, why was the Ark of the Covenant so important in uh, the biblical world, particularly in, in the Hebrew Bible? The first reason is because it represented God's presence. In the wilderness, the Ark of the Covenant marched ahead of the people. In fact, it was in the wilderness that Moses gave instructions given to him by God to, 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 to construct it. So you grab your, your carpenters, you grab your artists, you grab all of them, and you were to put this together. And so the idea was, was that as the priest and Moses leading them follows the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, uh, they, they are to follow the Ark of the Covenant. And so all of that is imagery that you are to follow God himself. As God comes down and he is, he is represented in the cloud and the fire and, and, in, and in, in the Ark of the Covenant and there with, with, with the tabernacle, as you walk in the wilderness, you have one job, and that is to follow after him. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites take, as we discussed this morning, the Ark of the Covenant into battle, believing they are taking God's presence with them. Now, their defeat and later the theft of the Ark of the Covenant by the Philistines was dramatic for them and traumatic for them because it symbolized God no longer dwelt with his people. God often describes his presence among his people in the context of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25, says, There I will meet with you, and from the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that on the Ark of the Testament, that is the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in command with the people of Israel. Notice there, I will dwell with you. I will come to be with you. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, right? This context where, where they lose it. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Notice there that, 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 that he is enthroned right there. If people say, where is God? They're like, I'll show you. He's in Shiloh, right? And I'll show you the mercy seat and all that sort of stuff, right? That is where, where God dwells. Now, they got a lot of their theology wrong in the days of Eli, the priest, and his sons, but at least understood, at least in some sense, that. In Numbers 10, says, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So, so you know, let's say the, the ark is stationary, right? The priests pick it up on the poles, and as they start walking, what is the people saying? Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord. And then you notice, when it rested, they would then say, return, O Lord, to the ten thousands, thousands of Israel. Notice there. So, so when they removed, they would say, arise, O Lord. Why? Because the Lord is, is leading them. When, when it would stop, what do they say? Well, return to us. We were seeking to follow you. Right? This was the ritual they, they would follow. And we'll see something similar next week when we return to, to Samuel. 
So clearly, you you read the Bible, it represents God's presence. God has come down to be with mankind. The Jewish religion later, the Christian religion is very clear that mankind, because of his brokenness, cannot reach up to God. You can build a tower, you can build you a really big ladder, but regardless, you can never touch the, the, the throne of God. We can never get there. The only solution is to abandon us or to come down to us. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. Not only that, it represented God's power. Now, these are all going to be alliterated. So if the Spirit of God don't show up, I'm out of ideas. Okay? Right? My, my preacher professor said if it's alliterated, that's how God works. But it represents God's power. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, it says, King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of God, and I made preparations for the building. Notice that language of footstool. Footstool is royal language. This is to say that it is here that though God ultimately dwells in the heavenly places, he makes the earth his footstool. And where, where, where does that demonstration of power, where is it to be seen? It's to be seen at the Ark of the Covenant. And didn't we see a demonstration of God's power this, this morning? Whenever Uzzah reaches out to touch the Ark, what happens? He dies. So just as Ananias and Sapphira die as a clear demonstration of God's holy power, so too Uzzah dies as a demonstration of God's holy power. God's presence brings with it God's authority. And thus there is no one above the Lord. And David, as king, understands that, that the real power lies not in the palace, but in the presence of God. If only I could think of an application to modern Americans there. Thirdly, it represented God's propitiation. There's a big word to be on your test. In the Bible, propitiation speaks of appeasing the wrath of God. And so once a year, the high priest and only the high priest would enter into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. There he would stand before the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the cherubim hovering above it. And he would offer, on behalf of the people, atonement. A lamb would be sacrificed and blood would be sprinkled. And propitiation, atonement, appeasement would be made for the people of God. In fact, as the high priest would enter into that, he would go through a series of elaborate rituals, including various washings. We've gone over this before. Several washings each day he'd wash. He'd be in a period of fasting and a period of isolation, lest he be tempted, lest he become unclean. And as he would, he would enter that, 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 that presence of God, he would sacrifice, uh, uh, make atonement for his own sins. And then he'd have to go back in and make atonement for, for the sins of, of his people. And, and every time he would go in, the, the, the tribes of Israel would, would gather around the temple. And they would gather around the high priest and they would cheer him on. Because unless he makes atonement, they are left in their sins. Thus, without the Ark of the Covenant, the presence and the power and the propitiation it represented, there could be no atonement. No atonement, no grace. No grace, no redemption. No redemption, no hope. Fourthly, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's proclamation. Much as God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. So Moses speaks to God later at the Ark of the Covenant. 
In Numbers chapter 7, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. It's very clear whose voice this is. Right? After all, think about it. What is inside the Ark of the Covenants? Well, you, you can read it here in Hebrews 9, doesn't it? It says it there at the end of verse 4, the tablets of the covenant. Those tablets of the covenant is, is the Ten Commandments. They're inside. So what are the Ten Commandments? It is God's written revelation to His people. It is, it is left in the Ark of the Covenant, for it is there where God's proclamation, God's revelation is stored, and Moses experiences God's ongoing revelation there at the Ark of the Covenant. And this is a reminder to the people as they follow it through the wilderness, as, as they gather there on the Day of Atonement, as they go into the temple each time, that they would say, if I want to hear from God, I know He has spoken, and I know He has spoken because He is with His people. Let us not underestimate the importance of that. The God who creates is the God who speaks. After all, did he not speak creation itself into existence? God is the one who still speaks. If only we will hear what it is that he would have to say. And that is the mistake that David made this morning, isn't it? He wanted people to be close to the word and the will of God. The problem is he was unwilling to consult the word and the will of God. How many of us, we, we know that God has spoken. We just rarely listen to what it is he has to say. I've given this story a thousand times before. I was reading a biography, a spiritual biography of Abraham Lincoln. And it made an interesting point in it. And it said that in Lincoln's day, no one went to church. If you were living out in the pioneer country and he was from Kentucky to Indiana, Illinois, there wasn't a church around. But he knew his Bible. Most of your people who could read, learned to read by reading the King James Bible. That is how you learned. However, today, there's churches everywhere. There's plenty of people go to church. Just no one reads their Bible. God has spoken. If only we will listen to what it is that he has said. Fifthly, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's promise. This is actually where I wanted us to go initially. We may return to, to it next week. Joseph does something strange at the end of his life. He writes up a last will and testament, if you will. You know the story, right? This is the guy who has saved his people. They're in Egypt. And, uh, you know, the story of Israelites sort of begins, right? In Canaan, they go to Egypt. What happens at the end in Genesis is the people of Israel are in Canaan. They end up in Egypt. That's how the story ends in Genesis. And Exodus is the story of how people of Israel leave Exodus to, or Egypt to go to Back to Canaan. But Joseph, you know, one of the most powerful men in, in the country. He's about to die. You remember what he requests? Take my bones and some future generation, whenever we get out of here, bury me at wounded knee. I mean, bury me at Canaan, right? And that's what he says there in, in Genesis 50, 25. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you will carry up my bones from here. What an odd request that is, isn't it? It doesn't say who, who gets his uh, radio. Or he doesn't mention any of that. He said, I got one request when I die. In generations in the future, God will deliver us from here. And when he does, take my bones with you. So on the eve of the Exodus, Moses orders that the bones of Joseph be removed. 
So in Exodus 13, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones with you from there. That's exactly what Moses does. Now, this event is later interpreted as a gesture of faith. Hebrews eleven twenty two said, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, of all the things the writer of Hebrews can mention about how Joseph is a man of faith, he, he doesn't mention Potiphar's wife and how Joseph persevered through that doesn't mention how by faith he, he was sold into slavery and yet he remained faithful and worked hard and worked his way up. doesn't mention how by faith and grace he forgave his brothers. doesn't mention how by faith he secured the security of his entire family by making sure they were all safe in Egypt. By faith he, he gave the people who had betrayed him their, their own land, the land of Goshen. By faith he did all of these sort of things, interpreted dreams, waited patiently upon the Lord. Uh, redeemed uh, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and people from, from around the world who gathered in Egypt because of the famine. It, it, it doesn't mention any of that in the Hall of Faith. Rather, it mentions his bones. By faith, Joseph requested his bones be buried in Canaan. What does that have to do with faith? It has to do with faith because it has to do with a promise. God had promised Abraham, the land of promise is not Egypt's. Nor is it Babylon where Ur was. It is Canaan. And your descendants will dwell here. So here's Joseph at the end of his life. Has, has made a life in Egypt. He's married an Egyptian girl. Has kids, everything. But he held fast by faith to that promise. It doesn't look like it now. It looks impossible now. But the day will come when God will redeem us out of here. And to demonstrate that, he says on his deathbed, when I die, my body will decay and my bones will dry. But when the day comes, bury me in Canaan, our home. And sure enough, after the Ark of the Covenant was constructed, one of the first things that was placed in there was the bones of Joseph. Sixthly, and I believe this is finally, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's provision. Not only did it hold the Ten Commandments, Joseph's bones, it also held Aaron's rod. Now, if you read through the Exodus story, something odd is going to stick out to you. Moses gets all the press today, but it's really Aaron doing all the dirty work, Right? So I assume Aaron must be the younger brother, right? Because he has to do all the dirty work. I'm the younger brother. So that's why I'm going to say that. It may not be biblically true, but we'll just roll with it. Um, think about it. It was Aaron's rod that was transformed into a snake in Pharaoh's courts. And then eventually, and this is the best part of the story, devoured the other snakes of the magicians, right? That's, that's the best part of the story. It was Aaron's rod that turned the water of Egypt into blood. It was Aaron's rod that summoned the plagues of gnats and frogs. It was Aaron's rod that sprouted with buds during the rebellion of Korah, representing that Aaron and Moses were God's chosen leaders. You remember the story, right? This is told in, in, in Numbers. The people um, wanted to hold an election because they didn't like their leaders. 
And so they had a business meeting. And someone nominated or made a motion. Sorry, I'll get it right. That's why I'm not a moderator. They made a motion. We replaced Moses and Aaron. And so they said, okay, uh, let's form a committee. I'm sure that's what they did. Uh, but this committee was the riot committee. And um, basically came down to is God's going to demonstrate who, who he wants to lead. And it turned out it was Aaron and Moses demonstrated by the budding of Aaron's rod. And as a result, Aaron's rod was a relic that reminded Israel how God provided them in the wilderness. How God provided them redemption in the house of slavery. It was a picture, a relic. But it didn't just hold Aaron's rod. It also held some of the manna they ate in the wilderness. This is what the text says. Exodus 16, verse 33. By the way, Aaron's rod is mentioned here in Hebrews 9. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. Two verses later, it says, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitual, uh, 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 habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land. Canaan. Later in Numbers 11. Now the manna was like, um, I can't pronounce that seed, and its appearance like that of uh, Bedlam. By the way, Bedlam's mentioned in Revelation. The people went about and gathered it on the ground. The handmills beat mortars and boiled in pots and cakes. The taste of it was like taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And then what did they do? They placed some of it that first night in the ark. In fact, it's mentioned here in the text, Hebrews chapter 9. So the manna and Aaron's rod in the ark was a reminder how God provided for his people. And if God provided for his people, it was an encouragement to them that God provides for his people. So yeah, I, I do think though we rarely discuss it in Baptist circles, the Ark of the Covenant is a very important part of the biblical story. But what does it all mean? And that can be cute and great historical research and biblical study and all that sort of stuff, but, but what does it really mean? I think you know where this is going. The complicated laws, regulations, and roles in the Old Testament all find their fulfillment in Christ. It is Jesus himself who who gets on the Pharisees and the religious leaders saying that you haven't really read Moses because he wrote about me. So too, when Moses describes the Ark of the Covenant, David and others describe the Ark of the Covenant, they are really writing about Christ. Notice, if, if you will, he, here in Hebrews 9, if you'll go down to, to verse 9, I know we did read it earlier. Verse 9, the, the latter part, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What is he saying there? He says after, uh, after laying and inscribing the role of the priest, we, we of course did this, I'm skipping there. He's describing the priest and the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all that sort of stuff. The writer of Hebrews concludes that these rituals, these positions, these roles, these traditions, all of them are inadequate. He says it there, it cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
Thus, the temptation on the part of these early believers is to return to Judaism, and that itself is a fool's errand. What are you gaining by turning to that which is inadequate? After all, religion has always proven to be inadequate. Whether we follow traditional religious rituals and traditions, or we go after secular religion, ritual, and traditions. Regardless, we are all made for worship, and because we are worshipers, we all buy into some form of religion. All of them are inadequate because they cannot cleanse the conscience. They cannot purify the worshiper. They cannot bring grace. And so that is why he turns to, starting in verse 11, how Christ is the true and greater high priest and simultaneously the true and greater lamb. We've talked about this a thousand times. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Notice there, as high priest, he is high priest. He steps into the most holy place. And what does he find? The mercy seat, the presence of God. He can enter as high priest, the presence of God, because he himself is divine. He is the mediator between God and man. So he represents the high priesthood as man. He represents God himself as the eternal son of God. He enters into the most holy place. And there is the cherubim, the presence of God, represented by the tabernacle itself. And he offers blood. He sprinkles blood. Not blood that you get out of a field from a lamb or a calf or, or, or cattle, but himself. The one who is the priest is simultaneously the lamb. And this, this is explored even more. Go down to verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice that's the issue here. If religion will not cleanse you, if religion will not purify you, then then and Christ does, then that should liberate us from dead works of religion to serve a living Savior who's in the world today. That's the point of the text. To go into all the detail about what is inside of a relic, a rod, some, some weird bread, tablets, and everything else. It is a reminder that what we need is a Savior. That God must come down and by His power and through the atonement of Christ, we may have redemption. Go on down to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy place made with hands, tabernacles, temples, and what's not, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Tell me, which one would you rather have? Which one would you rather hold in your hand? The original copy of, let's say, the Declaration of Independence, or one you could buy for three bucks at Walmart right now? Which one? The, the, the real one. So to which one would you rather approach? The very presence of God brought about by the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, or the copy made with human hands and artists, as gifted as they might be, but still uh, uh, prone to decay. The plumbing needs updated every few years. It needs a new paint job a few years. Which one would you want? The copy or the true real one? Those are but pictures 
of what is it that, that, that you have here? Wouldn't you rather have that? Or would you rather have a picture of the girl of your dreams, your wife, husbands? Or would you rather have her? You'd rather have her. So too, why would we settle for something far less? We can have Christ himself. So we can summarize this quite quickly, can't, can't we? Christ is the presence of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Ark of the Covenant represents the glory of God. I've shown you this a thousand times. The, the, the word there, dwelt among us, is the Greek word tabernacle. The word, that is the eternal logos from the first few verses of John 1, the eternal Son of God has dwelt among us. He has tabernacled among us. Christ is the power of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To those who are being saved. I love that language, being saved. Salvation is described as past, present, and future in the New Testament. The word of the cross is the power of God. Is the cross of Christ. Christ is the propitiation of God. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. By the way, verse 1 says that uh, uh, we should not sin, but if we do sin, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, for the sins of the whole world. Notice there that when we sin, that's not the end of the story. We're not disqualified from the race. Rather, we have one who atones for us. Christ is the proclamation of God. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. Christ is the promise of God. If you are Christ, Galatians 3, and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What assurance that brings us if Christ is the promise that it's defined by heavenly hands and held by heavenly hands. Finally, Christ is God's provision. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then notice how he breaks out in worship. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is Christ who provides. And that's the good news of the text, isn't it? So again, as Uzzah and David and everyone else should have approached the Ark of the Covenant with worship and awe. So too, we would do well to approach the Father through the Son with the same sort of awe, to live and shape our lives like it. So I I do love archaeology. And I think if we were to find the actual Ark of the Covenant, I think that would be a fascinating find. But it's ultimately a waste of time, isn't it? We know exactly where the Ark of the Covenant can be found, right? Not in Ethiopia. It's not in Europe. Not in a cave somewhere outside Jerusalem. Not even in a former Egyptian pharaoh's tomb. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? It is found in Christ. Seated at the, in the heavenly places at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Christ is the true and greater ark. We are called to follow him.
And we can go to him now. The question is, will we continue to follow him? And will we follow him with courage, covered by the blood of the Lamb, to go in his very presence? Let's do it now. Let's pray.